When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Yahoo Sports Hockey Podcast. We have an exciting show today. Today's guest is the voice of the New York Islanders and my bet to become the voice of hockey on the NHL on NBC for decades to come. It's MSG's Brendan Burke. With Brendan, we will discuss the hoops that he has to jump through to call games in the COVID era, his approach to introducing himself to one of the most unique fan bases in the NHL. We also discuss the night John Tavares returned to Nassau Coliseum. We'll also discuss what makes Barry Trotz so special and what it means to be part of the all-star cast at NBC. It's all that and more with Brendan Burke on the Yahoo Sports Hockey Podcast But before we get into our nifty transition music, just a reminder, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please interact with the channel in whatever way you can. That probably means rate, reviewing, subscribing. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment. We want to hear from you, Islanders fans. And with that out of the way, let's do this. The Yahoo Sports Hockey Podcast with Brendan Burke. He is the voice of the New York Islanders for MSG, and he belongs to exclusive company heard nationally on NBC. Brendan Burke, welcome to the Yahoo Sports Hockey Podcast. What's going on, man? Hey, good to be here. Good to uh, actually have some hockey to talk about. Yeah, I mean, uh, readjusting the life with hockey, I think, is what everyone in the industry is uh, doing right now. So obviously things have changed a lot for you. You got live hockey to call. Uh, you got a family at home. Just uh, how are things right now with everything, and uh, how are you readjusting the uh, back to work? I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's crazy. I mean, we we did so little for so long, and then everything kind of happened at once. Um, I had a baby just after Thanksgiving, our third kid. So um, I mean, that in itself was a huge undertaking. And then obviously getting back to work and working for both uh, for MSG Networks and for NBC Sports. Um, I'm in the middle of a stretch of seven games in eight days. So um, it went from zero to 60 pretty quick, but um, it's a nice reminder of how much I love what I do. And um, I'm fortunate to be able to do it on uh, pretty much a nightly basis. Well, seven and eight is tough and you're fitting in a podcast. So we definitely appreciate that. Uh, Let me hit you with the agenda. We're going to chat a little bit about you and your path. Uh, We're obviously going to talk about the New York Islanders and Islanders fans. We'll talk about the Mass Mutual East Division. Uh, you can let me know if I'm contractually obligated <laughs> to say that or include the sponsor. And also what's going on at NBC. But first, you know, we, we touched on a little bit, but I, I kind of want to know how work has changed for you. I mean, I believe this was your fifth Islanders opener last night. Uh, obviously, things are different with no fans in the stands and, and different protocols and so on and so forth. But I saw that you had to take a COVID test in the parking lot. I mean, these are definitely strange times, correct? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, the thing is that every day that I go to either the arena, which was the first time I got to go there last night, or whether we're doing the games from MSG Network Studios in Manhattan, or whether I'm doing them from NBC Studios in Stanford, it's a different protocol. So I have to remember which form I need to fill out, which test I need to take. Um, for NBC, we mail our tests in sometimes. Uh, for the network, for when we do it at the studio, um, I have to have a a negative test once every seven days, at least to get in there for the Coliseum. I need to test every time I go to the game. So um, there's a lot of other things that I don't normally have to worry about that. I have to make sure that I'm filling out the right form and doing the right thing just to make sure I don't screw something up and wind up not being able to do a game because um, I didn't follow protocol. So um, I think it's kind of the same thing that everybody's dealing with players are dealing with. There's an extra layer of responsibility just to do your normal job. And, and as long as you take that part seriously of, keeping yourself healthy and making sure you do all the right things, you know, then you get to do your job at the end of the day. So um, yeah, I've got a little checklist. I got to make sure I've got a folder in my phone of which form I need to fill out. So it, it gets a little complicated sometimes because of all the different scenarios. Um, but it, it's all worth it in the end because we get to uh, watch some hockey at the end of it. For someone who hasn't had a nasal swab yet, how annoying is that to do on a uh, regular basis? I, I've learned it depends on the person delivering the test or administering the test. Uh, <laughs> sometimes they're more uh, gentle. Sometimes they go for a long time. Uh, for some reason, I find myself holding my breath when they stick something up my nose. And the woman that I had um, before the opener at the garden was, uh, I, I literally ran out of air. I was holding my breath so long because she was still swirling it around. So um, it's, 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 if you can avoid it, do so. If you have to do it, um, it, it it's worth it. So you, you answered my next question a little bit. I was going to ask you about protocol for, you know, home games, road games, NBC games. I guess you're doing studio work at NBC and when uh, the Islanders on the road, but you were in the arena last night for the home opener for the Islanders. So, you know, I've, I've, I've been told that it's very difficult to call games on television. Uh, is this a huge learning curve that you're sort of following or is this sort of is this something you've done in the past and, and it's sort of like riding a bike again? Yeah, it's something that I really had never done until last year's return to play in the playoffs and then i wound up like i said because i work for two networks i i don't even know 20 games off a monitor last season between the mm -hmm. islanders run and you know a couple of rounds in the playoffs for nbc i did some westwood one work as well on radio where we were doing it off a monitor so i kind of got used to calling it off a monitor which i then forgot how much better it is to call a game in the arena until it actually dropped the puck last night and i could look around at whatever i want and follow whatever i want um, and it was it was almost like doing my job again for the first time. It was like somebody took handcuffs off me that had been on for nine months. Um, and the tough part is now it's back and forth, right? Tonight I'm in the studio to do Caps Pens. Tomorrow I'm in the studio uh, to do Wild uh, Ducks. And then I'll go back to the Coliseum on Thursday. So um, I'm still going to be doing both. I've learned to adjust to the monitor where you're limited to um, you know, what you see on the screen. I think some people think when they hear, oh, they're working off a monitor, they think I'm sitting in front of this wall of monitors and I can look at whatever angle I want. The reality is I'm literally sitting next to you on your couch trying to do your, my job. It, it's the, mm -hmm. I'm looking at the same thing you are. Um, and, and really that's all I'm working off of. So it's a struggle to ID players. It's a struggle to see referees when they've got a, their arm up behind the play. Uh, it's a struggle to see guys that limp to the bench. The normal things that you try and monitor during a game that are just impossible sometimes when you're working off a monitor. So it's been a learning process, but I think everybody, everybody understands that we're all trying to make this work and it's not ideal. And hopefully before too long, we can all go back to, uh, to calling games in person. So no travel then for you. You mentioned that you just had a third baby a couple months ago. Does this make things easier from a lifestyle perspective? Would you be a little bit 
reluctant to travel. You know, if someone who's doing seven games in, in eight nights, normally that means you'd be on probably 14 flights or, or something along those lines because play-by-play uh, -play men just do so much traveling. But it seems like that's going to be reduced for you uh, quite significantly. But if you were to uh, have the responsibilities of moving across the country, would you be a little reluctant given the times that we're living in right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it has to give you pause. Uh, I mean, just because there are things that you can control and there's things that you can't control. And and what I can control is what other people do. And when you put yourself in a situation where you can be compromised by somebody else's actions, and then me, on the other hand, bring that home into my house where I've got three kids, um, you know, that's something that, that would probably be a struggle for me. But at this point, um, I'm trying to look at it from the silver lining in all of this is that I had a baby and normally, as you said, I would be flying all over the country right now and not be home. And the reality is right now that I've got a seven week old baby and I'm home every night. Sometimes it's one or two in the morning. Sometimes it's, it's earlier, but mm -hmm. I I'm here every night for when he wakes up in the middle of the night, I can help out, uh, you know, my wife in that process. So, um, I'm thankful for that. It's something that I didn't really get to do with my other two kids. Um, so I've spent a lot of time with the new guy. And so, um, it's, it's been a, it's been a blessing in disguise for me. I, I obviously professionally would much rather be on the road and doing my normal job, but you know, personally right now, I'm not going to complain about a little extra time at home. Uh, you're one of the youngest guys in the business, or at least doing uh, what what it is that you do. I mean, this is a sort of a classic profession that many of the people that we listen to calling hockey games have done for a very, very long time. Uh, so you're, you're new blood, really. Um, so it's not going back too far, if I'm going to ask you about your beginnings here. But I guess when you first thought about a career in sports, what was the ideal for you? Uh, baseball play-by-play -play was, was honestly where I thought I was headed as a kid. Uh, I decided at nine years old that I want to be a broadcaster. Uh, my father's a sports writer, and so I kind of grew up um, around the sports media angle, and he was the Yankees beat writer when I was a kid. So I grew up going to the ballpark and, and, and watching you know broadcasters do their job from baseball stadiums, and that was always what I thought I would do. And then, um, But at the same time, I was actually born in Wisconsin um, and started playing hockey at a young age, and so I've played hockey my whole life while thinking I was going to be a, a baseball broadcaster. And then um, once I got to college and got an opportunity to call some hockey games and, and kind of marry those two things together, my experience playing the game of hockey and my experience broadcasting, um, those two things kind of went together and clicked. And so I wound up doing uh, minor league hockey and minor league baseball for the first few years out of school. And people would ask me, well, what are you going to choose? Which one are you going to do? And I, I honestly said, I said, I love doing both. I, I'm going to go with whatever takes me with it. And hockey just kind of took off for me. And so I wound up in the ECHL at 22, the AHL at 24, and, um, you know, got my, my break in the National Hockey League at 32 years old. So um, it, it was it was it was a wild ride. It was 10 years in the minor leagues, but it was uh, I really feel that this is where I was meant to end up. 10 years in the minor leagues. I mean, a, a lot of people who embark on your path uh, spend a lot more time than just a decade in the minors, yep. but uh, that means you paid your dues. I mean, 10 years is 10 years uh, calling games at, uh, you know, in minor league barns, ECHL, ACHL. Uh, can you sort of describe the difference? Because I don't think, obviously, you know, being a play-by-play -play man in the NHL is is a pretty uh, pretty established position, obviously. Uh, but there's a lot of work that goes into doing that if you're doing that at the minor league level. So can you describe the difference in being a play-by-play -play man in the ECHL versus the AHL versus the NHL? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, counterintuitively, it gets easier the the higher the level it is in terms of just being able to do your job. Number one is at, at the minor league level, when you're in the ECHL or the AHL, usually um, broadcasting is the last line of your list of responsibilities to do. 
Um, it's kind of like, if you do all of this other stuff, we'll let you broadcast the games at the end of the day. And, and that's how it's treated. And I understand that at the minor league level, it's about survival and making money for your team. And whether it's a sales responsibility or scheduling travel or whatever it is, social media, you know, media relations, community relations, whatever that is, those things are more important to the bottom line than making sure that you can identify all the players on a radio broadcast um, for the fans that are listening. So um, that's, that's the tough part about being in the minor leagues. For me, you know, when I was in Peoria, when I was in Utica, the American Hockey League, you know, I worked really closely with the coaching staff and I scheduled all of their travel, flights, buses, hotels, uh, meals, um, did all the per diem, all of that kind of stuff. I, I did a lot of the media relations and public relations and press releases and all that kind of stuff. So um, you're almost exhausted and you, you really sometimes neglect your own preparation for a broadcast. And so mm. it makes it that much harder to be good at the job that you want to do. And so you can progress in your career. So, um, you know, it's a lot of times where I'd say I work nine to five and then I go home and I do the stuff that I want to do, which is prepare for a broadcast. Um, and that's how, you know, you kind of have to treat it. I was uh, in a situation where early on in my career, uh, my wife now was, was my girlfriend back then. And, and we lived, you know, at long distance. And so I was alone. And so I literally worked all day, every day, um, and just kind of kept at it and kept at it and, and, and got some breaks. But, um, on, on top of all that, the ECHL and the AHL, the rosters are constantly changing. Um, mm -hmm. these guys are coming from presumably nowhere. The guy signs and you're like, I can find that he played college hockey at Penn state. And I've got a couple things here in the AHL. You've got game notes and game notes and, and every article and media coverage for everybody. And you've got almost too much information for a broadcast where at the AH, AHL and ECHL level, sometimes you don't have enough. So uh, just a, a different kind of struggle, but certainly um, um, it's a lot of work to get to the NHL and to do your job well at the, at the minor league level. Yeah, I think you might have understated a little bit off the top by saying how much easier it is. Not that it's an easy profession by any means, but it's just the information that's available to you is so much more difficult and obviously all the other things that you had to do. So obviously you've paid your dues uh, to get to this point, but you're still a young guy, a millennial, uh, and you're in a classic profession. So, uh, you know, this 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 job that historically has a bit of, you know, a set of rules, I guess, that, that most people follow unless you're like a, a super, super homer. Uh, I wonder how you've brought your own spin to what is uh, a profession that's done pretty much the same way for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I was, uh, I was the, the cocky kid coming out of college that thought I was going to be a national broadcaster at 23 years old. Um, didn't happen, but that's how I approach my broadcasts. And, and to, to your point, some people are homers and some fans love that and some markets mm -hmm. love that. And I've learned that. And I think that I, I, I actually met some resistance my first year in pro hockey was in Wheeling, West Virginia. And I wasn't a homer and they hated it. And they were saying, why are you getting as excited for other teams goals as you are for Naylor's goals? And I learned that while I felt that the broadcast should be more down the middle and more reserved than some other people that probably held the position before I did, um, you also learn that this is a, a performance industry it's an entertainment business and your fans are right. If that's what they want to hear, then they're right because it's their broadcast. Not, it's not my broadcast. They want to enjoy the game. And if they're not enjoying it, then I'm doing something wrong. And so I kind of learned to balance that a little bit between, um, you know, calling it down the middle and, and really being a homer. And so I try and, and have that balance with a little enthusiasm towards obviously the team that I'm working for. But at the same time, I wound up landing in a market in New York city 
where you can't be a homer. You really can't. We have some of the best broadcasters in the country here in New York, and New York fans don't want to be coddled or lied to or fluffed. They want to hear the truth. Now, there are some other markets, and 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 bless them, but uh, you know, Chicago, for instance, is not that market. They love the broadcasters that play to their fan right. base. Um, so you just kind of learn that. And I, I'm fortunate that I wound up in New York where I kind of fit in with that mold. And so um, I don't really have to change a whole lot. When I do an NBC game or I do a game for MSG, you know, my call doesn't really change a whole lot, which is nice for me. So how conscious were you of what the expectation would be in New York when you were coming in? My next question was, uh, I wanted to know how much thought you went that went into introducing yourself to a fan base. I mean, it's not easy taking over for a legend. So, you know, knowing, you know, what you did know at that time and what you know now, how conscious were you of making a certain impression when you did get the job uh, with the Islanders? Yeah, it's interesting because um, Howie Rose had done this job for 20 years. And before that, Jiggs McDonald had done it for 20 before that. So really, this was a small line of succession for me. But the two guys that I had, I had followed uh, certainly left their marks here. And, you know, I was I was kind of I guess I was kind of trying to figure out the answer to that question when I first got the job. And literally mm -hmm. my first broadcast was a preseason game in Brooklyn, um, you know, right after I got hired and like an hour before I won in the year, my phone rang and it was Howie um, who, who I was taking over for. And he gave me one piece of advice and it kind of changed my whole mindset. And the advice was, this is your job. Don't act like you're filling in for anybody. This is yours. And right. it, it kind of set me straight. And it was like, you know what? My and kind of going back to what I said about the fans being right, the fans don't care that I'm new. I mean, yeah, they do to a certain extent, but really they're they're not tuning in because I'm calling the game. They're tuning in because they want to watch the Islanders. So I'm going to walk in here like this is my 100th Islanders game and just pick up in the middle of a broadcast as if nothing had changed. And that was my kind of mindset going in because I didn't want it to be a jolt to the system. I wanted it to just flow seamlessly. I wanted people not to think about the fact that Howie wasn't there anymore. I just wanted them to enjoy Islanders hockey and go, hey, that new guy's okay. I, I enjoyed the game. That was great. And so that was kind of my mindset going in. So um, I kind of consciously decided against any sort of introducing myself to the fans or making myself stand out in any way. I just kind of went about the job and hoped that people would forget that I was new as soon as possible. I'm curious what you've learned about Islanders fans uh, in your five years now uh, being the play-by-play -play voice of the team. They are, they are one of a kind. Uh, they're a passionate <laughs> bunch. Um, you know, we have the smallest building in the league. Um, you know, we've had two buildings since I've been here. When I got the job, they were, games were exclusively in Brooklyn. In the middle, mm -hmm. they were split between Brooklyn and Nassau Coliseum. And now they're exclusively in Nassau Coliseum for this year. And next year, they'll be at Belmont Park in their brand new arena. So this fan base has been through a lot. Um, they don't believe anything is actually happening until it has already happened. Um, that goes with success on the ice. That goes with the arena being built. I mean, there are fans, th th this arena, if you haven't seen the pictures of it, is it has walls, it has a roof, it, it, they're installing seating soon. It is very much a real thing that will be there for next year. And there are still fans that go, I'll believe it when they drop the puck. <laughs> like it just, and because they've been toyed with for 20 years about getting a new arena. So that's, that's the kind of fan base they have, but it, it may not be the biggest fan base in terms of the number of fans, um, but the passion is unparalleled and Nassau Coliseum is a very special place, um, especially when it's full. And that's what made last night for us, um, you know, so hard to swallow is that it was a home opener mm -hmm. and you can't help but think about what it would be like if there were fans in the building. And, and 
And so uh, I'm hopeful. I don't know if it's going to happen. I'm hopeful that by the end of this season or the end of the playoff run, that at least there's some fans in there because it would be a shame to close that building without any fans. Yeah, it definitely would. Um, the new arena, obviously, construction right now, you're going to be spending a hell of a lot of time there. Uh, did you have any say in what the broadcast booth might be, uh, you know, the dimensions, what it might look like? Uh, did you have any, were you consulted at all uh, by the by the builder? Uh, I, I dropped a few hints with our ownership. I don't know how many of them were taken into account, um, you know, but we have great ownership in, in Scott Malkin and John Ledecky and Dewey Shea that um, are very engaged with our fans and with with myself and, and my broadcast team as well. So we, we've talked about some things. Um, I don't I honestly don't know what, what it's going to look like and, and where we're going to be situated. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to, to see all of that. But um, I'm supposed to get a tour. I, I can get a tour anytime I want. I haven't been able to fit it into the schedule, um, but I want to get a tour and see where, where it's going to be. But, um, you know, I'm sure no matter what it is, uh, we'll be taken care of. And I know people at MSG were consulted. It just, you know, a little higher up on the food chain than, than the broadcaster, I think. Right. As long as the sight lines are yeah. good. Um, no team, I think, is more defined by their coach in the NHL right now than the Islanders. And I think that's an example of people just finding another reason for the Islanders' success because they might not want to accept that they're a good team. But Barry Trotz's abilities are undeniable. So I'll ask you, what makes him such a special coach? I think because he's a special person. I really do. I think because he's just a genuinely good human being that people want to play for him. And it's not a, it's, it's not a question of um, you know fitting in or everybody just kind of falls in line. And I think from he came in at a great time. And, and not really a great time, but I think that everything was working perfectly to insert him into the coaching staff when they did um, that, that being this previous season, the Islanders gave up more goals than any team in the NHL had given up in 10 years. Um, and so they had just lost John Tavares. So they lost their captain. They had missed the playoffs. They had been an embarrassment in their defensive zone and given up so many goals. And I think everybody in the room Meanwhile, Barry Trotz had just won the Stanley Cup and two weeks later becomes the head coach of the Islanders. I think everybody in the room was like, listen, we're, we're open to anything you've got because we need we know we need to fix this. So we will listen to you and we will do what we need to do. And I think the, he got a, a captive audience for his message. And I think everybody took it to heart. Anders Lee as the new captain was was the perfect choice to kind of get everybody together. And then they started having success on the ice and nothing reinforces a coach's message like the players being able to see tangible evidence and results of what he's preaching and so everybody bought in and they had that first season where everybody had written them off where they're going to be a last place team I think Deadspin wrote an article at the start of that season where it was says NHL rankings from first to the Islanders I mean it was that kind of season and the Islanders wound up winning a playoff round against the Pittsburgh Penguins so um, you got that immediate success uh, you know they were they were Jennings trophy winners for a team that was gave up you know they cut off a hundred goals from the previous season so um, I, but I really think it starts with, with Barry Trotz as a person, as a human and the staff that he's assembled and, and it fits in perfectly with the, with the players on the roster as well. In retrospect, how nutty was the night John Tavares returned for the first time? Yeah, it was bananas. I mean, it was, uh, like I said, the Coliseum is a special place, low ceilings, very loud. And I'm not sure I had heard the Coliseum as loud as it was during warmups that night when he stepped on the ice. So um, it was crazy. And then to have the Islanders go out there and just basically demolish the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, you know, mm -hmm. 
a 6-1 game, people usually leave. I mean, nobody left that one. They wanted to enjoy every <laughs> second of that game. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a fun night from start to finish. For this season, uh, what was your most intriguing storyline entering the year? What were you most excited to see or perhaps have answered in, I guess, what is the 2021 season? I mean, I, I guess where, you know, this East division is a gauntlet. And I think that that's going to be an intriguing storyline for, there are going to be some really good hockey teams that would have made the playoffs under a different alignment in a different world um, that are going to miss the playoffs because of this East division. I mean, four, the four, only four spots in the East and you've got, you've got six legitimate contenders uh, and, and perhaps Buffalo and New Jersey are better than we, we give them credit for. And maybe it's more than that. Um, so I, 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 I'm interested to see, how this plays out like, because the Islanders can have a good season and miss the playoffs. And that's the reality right. of it with the way things are every game of four point night. And jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment. Every time they see it, blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, you know, with the, the back-to-backs against the same teams, and it's just going to all be very different. For the Islanders specifically, I'm really interested to see Elias Sorokin. He didn't really get a fair shake in his NHL debut. Um, having to right. come in really in an emergency with Varlamov going down and he did not have a good night all around and the team in front of him had, had just as poor of a night. Um, but he is supposed to be the goalie of the future. He is, has long been billed as the best goaltender in the world, not playing in the NHL. He's won a championship in the KHL. He's been an all-star the last five years over there. He had nine shutouts in the KHL a year ago. I mean, he's been dynamic over there and I'm hopeful to see, that translate over to the NHL. I think that, uh, you know, for the Islanders Rangers rivalry for so long, it had been, you know, Halak against Lundqvist. It had, then it had been Varlamov and Leonard uh, and, and Grice against Lundqvist. And now we've got this changing of the guard where it's going to be Shesterkin against Sorokin. And mm-hmm. those guys have been teammates in, in, in Russia for the Olympic team. They've been going head to head in Russia. I think the success that Shesterkin had last year with the Rangers was one of the driving factors of Sorokin going, you know what? I'm coming. I'm going to show you that I can do that over there too. And so Mm. it just adds another dynamic to this Islanders Rangers rivalry. So, um, you know, Sorokin is is supposed to be a big part of this team moving forward. So I'm interested to see how his rookie year pans out. So is that the key then? Is that goaltending matchup the key to, you know, obviously we need normalcy and we need fans to be back in the seats again, but for the Islanders Rangers rivalry to really, really pop again, like it has before and like it maybe, you know, even more so than it has in in the past, is that goaltending rivalry and two strong teams, two teams that are different in the way they're constructed, is that sort of the key to the Rangers and Islanders being, you know, one of the biggest stories year in and year out? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, they they haven't been both in the playoffs in a long time, right? So the Rangers right. had their runs while the Islanders were struggling, and then the Islanders started, you know, they've made the playoffs and won rounds back-to-back years while the Rangers have been in their, their world's fastest rebuild. So, um, it, yeah, I think both teams to be maybe three or four years where they're both in the playoffs and maybe they have to meet in the playoffs and kind of get through one another because the Islanders and Rangers rivalry is fantastic. Um, but the, the, I guess for Rangers fans, it's always, oh, well, it's more important to the Islanders this than the Rangers because who cares about the little guys. Right. But I think that mm-hmm. if, if, if the Islanders can assert themselves as a perennial contender in whatever division winds up being the division that these two will share, because I, I can't see a way where they're going to divide the two from different divisions, um, no matter how they draw the lines and whatever this world throws at us, the Islanders and Rangers are always going to be fighting for the same playoff spot. So um, I think with both teams headed in the right direction, um, yeah, it could grow back into one of the, the most fun rivalries for people to watch that have nothing to do with Islanders Rangers. Right. Uh, the Matt Barzell deal was described as a win-win or labeled a win-win by pundits. I understand that it sets up Matt Barzell beautifully for the future. He's obviously going to have that big qualifying offer and he can sign his big money deal then or the the you know the biggest contract is, of his career then. But this is a bigger win for the Islanders, is it not? I mean, just given how special Barzell is and, and how they can build for the next three seasons with a, a reasonable cap figure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they would have loved to get it done long term. I think they just have a lot of money tied up in some contracts that they, they would love to not have. I think Andrew Ladd's contract is hurting them right now. I think Leo Komarov's yeah. contract is hurting them right now. I think Thomas Hickey's contract is hurting them right now. I think, uh, you know, even Nick Letty, who's a, a good player for them, is making, you know, $6 million where they probably would like to see uh, him replaced by somebody who's making half that. So uh, there's a lot of money set to come off the books in the next couple of years, which should. Um, make it much more palatable for the Islanders to be able to sign Matt Barzell to his, whatever it's going to be, nine, $10 million figure for seven to eight years, you know, coming up mm-hmm. in three years. And he's still going to be a restricted free agent. So he's not going to walk in a UFA year. Um, but yeah, the, the $7 million price tag on him, he, he is not a $7 million player in today's NHL. No, he's not, not, he's nine or 10. And so to get him in at that level and locked in for a few years, it gives you some flexibility and it gives you a plan. If you know, that, that his contract's up and you know he's going to cost you $10 million, you can make that work three years from now. They couldn't make it work with a flat cap over the offseason. They will find a way to make it work moving forward, though. You mentioned the contracts that might be hurting the Islanders uh, and a ramification or a repercussion of that uh, was losing Devin Tays. How significant is that loss for this season and obviously moving forward? I guess it depends on, on Noah Dobson's progression. Uh, certainly it's mm-hmm. a loss. They did not want to trade Devon Taves to Colorado. That was not a part of the plan, but it was unfortunately, uh, you know, the cap gymnastics that it would take to even get Barzell in at the $7 million figure, because they not only had to sign Matt Barzell, Ryan Pollock, their arguably number one defenseman uh, also was an RFA and they had to get him signed too. So they had to move some money out and with nobody really willing to take on money in terms of bad contracts, you have to trade somebody with value. And they got value. They got two second round picks in return for Devon Taves. Um, and, and he's a good player. He's a good puck mover. I am very interested to see how he and Kale McCarr work as a pair in Colorado, because that is two of the best skating defensemen in the entire national hockey league. I think yep. maybe not a lot of people understand how good of a skater Devon Taves is, but they will now seeing him play along with Kale McCarr. Um, but yeah, they did not want to do that. But again, how that hurts the Islanders. They've got a 21 year old defenseman in Noah Dobson who's a first round pick who, Last year got caught in between in that 
he had already won two Memorial Cups and doesn't really gain anything out of playing in junior, but he was too young to play in the American Hockey League. So he was just kind of around the team and played when there were injuries and played about 30 games or so and got his feet wet. But now he's he's a regular part of their top six defenseman and he's going to play every night and he's going to play on the power play and how quickly he progresses and how much um, he can kind of, I guess, take some of the load that Devon Taves had been carrying um, is is the big part of how we judge whether or not the Devon Taves was, trade was a success or not. You mentioned that the East Division was probably the toughest in the NHL, and I tend to agree with you. So how do you handicap the division? What team, uh, you know, is the most difficult challenge, I guess, for the Islanders in pursuit of a division title? And does that change when we get to the playoffs? Would you handicap the division a little bit differently uh, when the game changes uh, uh, come the spring? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, you could make a legitimate case for the Bruins, the Capitals, the Flyers, the Islanders, the Penguins, all to have an opportunity to win the division. I think probably the Penguins yeah. have a little more question marks with the, the roster makeover that they've over uh, gone over. I think the, the Capitals obviously have a new head coach and a goaltending situation that's unsettled. Um, you know, but the Flyers, the Bruins, the Islanders, I mean, they're pretty much the same teams that were very good hockey teams a year ago. So um, you you could make the case for any one of those teams, however you you wanted to push it, that those are, are the number one teams in the East Division. So when you've got that deep, I think probably – if you want to talk about the top of the division, that West division with Colorado and Vegas and St. Louis, that might yep. be the best top of the division, but top to bottom, it's hard to argue against how good this East division is because the Rangers are knocking on the door to being a playoff team. Buffalo is much improved. Um, you know, the devils are still a work in progress, but I think that when you look at it, I think the Islanders probably when you face everybody eight times, everybody is your number one opponent. And every point, every game's a four-point game. So um, you're probably looking at the Islanders' capitals as being a, a big one for them to get through. But mm -hmm. I think for the Islanders, I think they just want to get in. I think they understand that their game is built for the playoffs, and they've proved that over the past couple of years. So as long as they can finish in those top four, I don't think they're worried about finishing fourth or finishing first. I think they'd love to finish first. But I think when you get to the playoffs, their game is built for that, and they've been able to shut right. down and grind out teams that maybe – can't adapt to the suffocating style of defensive pressure that the Islanders bring. Um, and, you know, they made it, people thought they were going to lose in the qualifying round last year to Florida and they made it within a, you know, a two games of the Stanley cup final. So yep. um, they gave Tampa everything they can handle, but they, they made it look relatively easy against Washington took seven games against Philadelphia. But um, you know, I, I think that those, those three teams, the Islanders, the Flyers and the Caps are probably, and the Bruins as well. I, you know, the Bruins, I got to see them last night. The left side of the D, you know, Lausanne's a good player, but, you know, losing Char and Krug, it, it, it's interesting. And whether or not Pasternak comes back at full strength, um, they, they do have some question marks, but that's still a good hockey team over there in Boston. Yeah, the reality is in the East Division that at least uh, two teams, two quality teams are not going to make the playoffs just because of the strength of the division. And it's really, if I'm not mistaken, it's just uh, basically, at least at the top of the division, exchanging the Bruins for the Carolina Hurricanes. The Carolina Hurricanes may be a better team than the, than the, the Boston Bruins right now. You mentioned the left side of the D. Obviously, it hasn't been a great start for them, uh, but I think they were maybe, you know, most people's picks actually to win the East Division. So it's obviously tough sledding, but uh, you're right. I think it's just about getting in for the Islanders and they can give trouble to just about anyone. Uh, let's switch to let's switch topics to NBC. I'm very fascinated with sort of the the prestigious group that's come together and your involvement in that in that group. I mean, you're only five years into your NHL career and you're 
you're included in this all-star group that covers the NHL for a national level. You mentioned being the 20, wanting to be that 22-year-old, 23-year-old cocky kid covering the sport nationally. You know, it's maybe about a decade later, but is it still sort of, I guess it wouldn't be humbling if you were that cocky kid back then, but now that you are into your career, you know, 10 plus years, uh, is it humbling to be a part of that group? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, at the same time, you know, having the perspective of the last 10 years, you know, I, I, I thought I was ready at 23 and I look back and go, no chance, man. Like you weren't ready. Mm. Um, you know, and, and so now, you know, it's, it's been a wild ride. I mean, I, I want to, my first game for NBC was a playoff game, my very first year in the NHL. So, um, it, it's been a wild ride to go from, I've, I've gone from calling AHL games on the radio in Utica, New York to calling, you know, I've done opening night games each of the last two years for, for NBC on the national level. So, um, you know, it, it's been a crazy time just because of the the shift in the landscape where I kind of came into the NHL. I don't want to say I, I was the first, but uh, kind of a new wave of younger broadcasters. I got the job in 2016, and then Alex Faust joined the Kings the next year as, as a guy mm-hmm. who's younger than I am. Um, you know, Steve Mears got the Penguins job. Uh, Josh Bograd got the job in Dallas, and you're starting to see the the shift of we had all of these longtime broadcasters, whether it was you know, Howie Rose or Bob Miller or Dave Strader, um, you know, moving on um, and and uh, opening up jobs that, that just don't open very often. But they didn't go with the the 60-year-old radio guys that were waiting for a chance. Everybody kind of went with that young hire of saying, hey, we're recognizing this guy could be the voice of our team for a very long time. And so um, that was, you know, a break for me is that that was the mentality for a lot of these teams where for so long, I trust me, I've, I've not gotten a lot more NHL shops than I have gotten over the 10 years that I was waiting for an opportunity. Um, so that wasn't always the mentality. It was always the, you know, we want a guy that is, has NHL experience. And once teams were able to get past that and realize that there are some good broadcasters that just haven't gotten an opportunity, um, you know, and then I was able to come in. So to, to be included with a group that when I first came in had, not only the Kenny Albert and John Forzen, who's still part of this group, but obviously Doc Emmerich, who's, who's an mm-hmm. idol of mine, and Gord Miller and Chris Cuthbert and Dave Strader my first year. Um, you know, the, just seeing the list of names and seeing my name at the bottom of it, I mean, really was the coolest thing in the world to just be included in a group like that because those are guys that, you know, I still feel like I don't belong in the room sometimes. Like when I when I chat before the game with – with John Forslin or Kenny Albert or Sam Rosen or whoever it is, I, I feel like, like I, like I broke in, like I stole somebody's credential. Like I shouldn't be able to do what I'm doing because um, you know, I have so much respect for the guys that, that, that do what I do um, for some of the other teams and, and, and the NBC network. Now, if you consider it a depth chart, I don't think you can really do that, but the way it was released at the start of the season with NBC, you know, announcing its uh, broadcasters, uh, analysts, and so on and so forth, your name was, you know, pretty high up on the list and beside Pierre Maguire. So I'm not sure if you're working with him exclusively. I'm sure it's going to be more of a rotation, but what is working with Pierre Maguire like? Pierre's unbelievable. I'm actually doing a game with him tonight. Um, we're not working exclusively together, but I will do a fair share of games. And I've done a lot of games with Pierre. Um, it, it's, it's incredible. Uh, you know, the, the tidbits and the knowledge that he has that, that, you know, he can rattle off the guys, junior coaches or teammates or wherever. I mean, it's all in his head. He, it's, he's not sitting there looking at a binder of notes. Uh, he, it's, it's, it's up here. And, and I fact checked him 
I, I try to do my, a lot of research on my own and I've got a lot of notes in front of me. And every time you pull something out, I turn a page in my notes and go, yeah, he's right. Like I, he, <laughs> he's right. Um, but no, he, he's, he's one of the most prepared broadcasters that there is, um, you know, and, and he does, you know, such a good job in, in what is a difficult spot that between the benches spot is such a unique thing. Um, and he, no one does it better than him. I think that people you know, forget that it's a lot easier to see things from up top. You see different stuff and you, you experience different things between the benches, but it's a lot easier to analyze the game from the press box and kind of see everything develop in front of you. But he's able to pick up a lot of the stuff that you would think he wouldn't be able to from that spot um, because of how well he does the job and the relationships that he has with the players and the coaches. Um, you know, it's been great for me to do playoff games with him where he'll introduce me to people that, um, probably have no idea who I am um, because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm still new to the league. So, you know, it gives me a little bit extra credibility to, to be his wingman for some broadcasts. And um, I, I always enjoy working with him. Penguins and Flyers opened the season, I guess it was a week ago um, at 5.30, sort of a weird time, but uh, I guess the NHL spacing things out, which we've been sort of clamoring for for a while to be uh, able to watch more games and have them staggered a little bit. Uh, but it did record numbers. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it did very, very well. A very positive sign uh, considering, you know, what's going on in the world, the NBA and the NFL being at, you know, the not the height of their powers. Obviously, a lot of interest in the NFL right now in playoffs uh, and the NBA always has strong backing. What do you make of the Flyers and Penguins doing so well on television and on NBC on that first night and what that means maybe for the rest of the season and moving forward here? Yeah, I, th I think it's just... Um you know, people are just ready for, for something for hockey to come back. I, you know, it was such a long time. And, and I think too, it, it kind of, the way the schedule was released or announced, it was, it, it felt last minute to a certain extent, right? Like it wasn't normally it's, it's the, the season ends, it's the middle of June and you've already got, all right, it's a hundred days. We've got it. It's October 3rd where it's on the calendar. We already know what's going to happen. And this time it was, it was Thanksgiving. We still didn't know when the season was going to start. And so I think that it was, people really wanted to look forward to it and didn't know how to look forward to it. And so there was, there was that excitement of, of, okay, here it is. We've got a date. It, it's, it's, it's January 13th and we've got three games and I'm going to be on there five 30 and I'm going to watch it. And um, you know, I, I, I'm glad that people were excited about it. I'm glad the numbers reflected the, the excitement for the new season. I hope uh, people hung out for that 1030 start between St. Louis and Colorado that, <laughs> that I was on. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a late one. So I understand on the East coast that might not have made it, but um you know, it, it's great. The the triple header on opening night, we had a quadruple header um, on Martin Luther King Day. So uh, I like being able to watch hockey all day. So I, I love it. I'm glad they've been able to figure out a way to schedule some of those. Yeah, that, now that you're, you know, high on that depth chart, we need you to keep pushing for those staggered starts. Uh, it benefits all of us. And certainly uh, those who are excited to see the Penguins and Flyers on opening night. Now I've had... Uh, the, the ability to hang around Scotiabank Arena for the last few years, which means I caught, you know, the final few years of Mike Babcock's career with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, so that means I've heard a lot of press conferences involving him. And some days you think, well, he could definitely be a panelist to other days where it's like, that's not going to work. So you tell me uh, the splashy addition to NBC's roster this year, at least in terms of panel analysts. Uh, is Mike Babcock, what's he going to bring to the NBC panel? <laughs> I, I guess I'm as curious as everybody else to see. I, I don't really, uh, I, I've, obviously I've sat in many of those same press conferences with Mike Babcock. I would imagine it's going to be a little bit of a different, um, uh, I guess, approach for him with the media as a member of the media um, than somebody who who really didn't seem to enjoy talking to the media. But 
Um, you know, I, I guess uh, as of now, I believe he's just a studio analyst, so I won't have to to interact with him on a on a regular basis. But if he happens to pop into a booth and 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 actually be a game analyst, I will be uh, very excited to work with him because on top of uh, you know, aside from everything else, he's he's one of the the great hockey minds, right? And those guys, when you talk to really all the analysts that NBC has, whether it's Pierre Maguire, or Brian Boucher, uh, Eddie Olchick, these guys are are such great thinkers of the game. And and I've been around the game, you know not necessarily the NHL level, but I've been around hockey my whole life. Um, and I think I see the game pretty well. And then I'll talk to these guys and it's, it's, it's like we're watching different games. Like they see so many other things um, away from the puck and things that develop and just, you know, it, they have a whole different perspective. And so I'm curious to see what, what Mike Babcock's perspective is because a lot of the way he's watched the game, unless you play for him, you don't know what that means, right? You don't know how he processes the game in his head. And now I think as an analyst, we'll be able to get a glimpse as to, you know, how his great hockey mind works when he starts sharing some of that stuff with us. Yeah, certainly people in Toronto will be excited to see uh, when he does hit the panel there. Uh, it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to see what, what you know, how he approaches that because it's certainly a change from, I mean, this is a guy, he, he certainly knows how to use the media. He, he, <laughs> he, he is one of the, the experts of getting his message out. And I wonder how that'll translate when it's not, you know, for self-serving interests, which is to protect his hockey team or to uh, get or, or himself and trying to get the message out that he wants. So it'll be interesting to see how he toggles between coach and analyst. Uh, it's one of the fascinating things from this year, for sure. Uh, last question for you. Uh, you mentioned Doc Emmerich uh, when we first started this little bit on NBC and how he's had such an influence on you. I'm wondering, you know, when you think about that name, what's the memory that comes back to you first? How much contact did you have with him when you were getting started and what sort of his lasting legacy will be uh, on you and, and on the game at large? Yeah, I mean, for, for me growing up and I grew up, um, I grew up in New Jersey, um, right outside New York City. So I was fortunate to, to live in a place where I got the Rangers, the Islanders and the Devils on television. And, and for most of my childhood, not only was Doc the, the voice of the NHL on a national level, but he also did Devils games. And so I watched a lot of Doc Emmerich as a kid and, and I was fascinated by him um, as a, a wannabe broadcaster and just the emotion and the passion that he was able to bring uh, to the game. I mean, really, when when I'm thinking about the job of a television play-by-play guy, you you can see who has the puck. Sometimes maybe you can't see the number, but you understand. You know where they are on the ice. The thing that it's a good TV play-by-play guy does in my eyes is bring the emotion from the arena to you at home. Makes you feel what you would have felt if you were sitting in the stands while you're sitting on your couch. And I don't know if anybody who has or will do that better than Doc Emmerich. I mean, he he made you understand when that puck was around the net, the urgency, um, and, and your ears perked up, and and his voice went up an octave, and and it's just something that um, is 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 so important to the experience of the broadcast. And I think that is why so many people love him because of the way they he made them feel while he watched a game. Now, on top of that, one of the best storytellers in the game. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and obviously his vocabulary is unparalleled. He is in many ways, hockey's Vin Scully, where it's just, you, you, he will often be imitated, but never duplicated. And it's just, he is doc and there's, there's no other doc and no one will ever be doc. Um, for me personally, now looking back, I am fortunate enough to have somewhat of a relationship with doc, um, that started really when I got the job with the Islanders, I had the job with the Islanders for a couple of days and I already had an email from him that just said, Hey, 
you know, welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, looking forward to seeing you around the rinks. And to me, that was the coolest thing. And, and even sometimes, uh, you know, one of my first games, it was the Islanders home opener, my first year, um, the Islanders, they won it on an overtime goal from Josh Bailey. And it was my first really big moment as the Islanders broadcaster. And I felt pretty good about it. I, I was living in Brooklyn. So I had done the game and I was walking home from, from the game in Brooklyn. And I, and I pulled up the clip on my phone to watch it again. And I, I was like, you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm happy with that. Um, and then I closed the NHL app where I was watching the, the highlight and I got a little red light on my, uh, my mail notifications and an email from doc and just said, Hey, sound, you sounded great tonight. Um, looking forward to seeing you next week. And just, you know, that kind of reassurance from doc meant the world to me still means the world to me. Um, and so I've, uh, I, I'm, those are the memories that I'm going to have of the little personal touches that I've had with doc. Um, and, but at the same time, the professionalism too. Um, you know, he did games from his house last year in the bubble and the Islanders are not a team that often winds up on, on the NBC schedule and certainly not at the top of the depth chart, right? Where doc is calling games very often over the last decade. Um, and so doc was, was calling me to double check pronunciations from his house for the Eastern Con I, if doc says, his, says the name that I'm uh, differently than me, then I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, like he doesn't need to check with me. If he wants to call him, whatever he wants to call him, I, then I'm going to have to change the way I, I pronounce his name, but, but that's not how he does it. He, he makes sure that even till the last game that he did. And even though he has a handle, he literally writes the pronunciation guide for the NHL, but he still well, is double checking with the broadcasters, the team that he was about to do to make sure that he was, was 100% correct. And so, you know, little things like that are something that that I won't forget. And that I'll make sure that I remember as I'm going through my career is that you you always want to make sure that you do your homework and make sure you're doing the right things. And, um, you know, Doc, somebody that impressed that upon me. Well, that's really cool to hear because obviously Doc Emmerich was was the voice, undisputed, the voice of hockey in the United States and his relationship with you. He might be passing along to the next voice of hockey in the United States. Uh, Brendan, you're a true rising star in the industry. Uh, and like I said, a voice we're going to be hearing in big games for decades to come. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, let's do this again sometime. Hey, Justin, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for the, uh, the kind words and look forward to doing it again. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.